0: Who is the founder and chairman of the Multipolarity Report? Alex, welcome.
1: Hello, Alex. Nice to talk to you.
0: So, let's get a bit of a background, firstly, on yourself and how did you come to be so interested in geopolitics?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I have a background in uh, economic and political science, and over the years I have uh, been working at uh, financial institutions in research uh, positions, and I came to be interested uh, into the uh, uh, interaction between uh, economics and geopolitics because this is uh, one of the blind spots uh, that uh, are often uh, overlooked uh, by uh, investors and decision makers uh, and actually it matters uh, a lot when you look at uh, all the disruptions that we have been going through and actually uh, history is is full of disruption but it's also full of um, you know underlying trends that you have to understand uh, in order to make more informed decisions and uh, Therefore, I came to study this crossover, if you want, uh, between economics, finance, and uh, geopolitics.
0: So, as you look at the three key areas of economics, finance, and geopolitics, how do you, how do you use that framework? You know, what are the key, I guess, factors that you use when you're starting to think about you know, the world more broadly? Do you look at then regions? Do you look at key superpowers? What are the key factors that you look into?
1: Well, actually, first I try to develop a worldview or on where the world is going as a whole. So, you know, there is this international order, and I I try to to look at this international order in which there are different players. There are large players, there are small players, large economies, small economies, and there are interactions between all these economies. There are macro interactions from trade and financial flows, but there are also geopolitical interactions with different alliances and counter-alliances. And I try to look at the big picture first, uh, and then I try to dig uh, deeper into a specific uh, you know, region or sector, taking into account uh, this overall picture and these macro dynamics.
0: We sit at a very interesting time in the world today where we're literally hours away from a transition of power from, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. How much do you see as, as politics playing a role in terms of these world powers? You know, does it matter who the actual person is or is it the bureaucracy that sits within these countries?
1: Well you no, know, Alex, I would be tempted to say yes and no actually, because indeed it matters on the individual level. you have different personalities with somewhat different agendas, but uh, you also have these strong bureaucracies that have own internal dynamic. Uh, no, I was reading uh, one uh, book uh, written by uh, Karl Marx few days ago in which he was uh, alluding to the fact that, for example, the United States, and the United Kingdom were the, the, the last countries really to have this all-encompassing uh, bureaucracies. It came at the end of the 19th century, whereas for France uh, and uh, Germany and other countries, it was more uh, ancient. And therefore, uh, you can see that these uh, bureaucracies have over, uh, uh, over the time developed their own agenda. And uh, you can see it in the U.S. where you have some agencies uh, which, uh, like the, the trade uh, department, like the Department of State, they, they have their own agendas and they are moving these agendas, uh, whoever is at the White House. Uh, And uh, in this regard, for example, the the China-U.S. relationship uh, is very much uh, shaped by by these different uh, approaches from one agency to the other on on different uh, topics, from human rights, for example, the the Uyghur uh, matter, or uh, in trade, uh, where you have this uh, entity list with the uh, Chinese entities uh, that are forbidden from interactions with the U.S. uh, investors and companies. And this is all related to bureaucracy. Not as much as it is related to the political leadership, which will put more or less pressure on this administration and will try to move them in some direction. But overall, I think there is, as you say, this internal logic of bureaucracies.
0: Look, it's interesting when you when you're taking a, a world view. A lot of focus, particularly of, of recent times, has been between the U.S. and and also the EU as a bloc. Probably about five years ago, there was a huge focus on the BRICS—the Brazil, Russia, India, and China—as a as a group. And now it seems right. like all the focus is on China, EU, and Europe, including also the UK and the US. How much do you think that the the other BRICS, you know, ex-China and emerging markets, still play a, a role in in sort of the world dynamics?
1: Well, I think they they, they really do because, uh, and this is one of the coordinates of my framework and my research, the, the multipolarity project, the word uh, multipolarity stands uh, for this diversity of layers which all have an influence on the system. And um, uh, yes, China is a disproportionate uh, member of the BRICS, for example, and we are now talking a lot about China. But if you are looking uh, to India, for example, India has more people than China and uh, it has been growing at Chinese rates uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, It is replicating what China did actually 30 uh, years ago. And uh, therefore we can see a a shift Of uh, you know uh, influence in the future with a country like uh, India regaining some weight against China, Um, and you have also the other uh, BRICS like Russia and Brazil, also South Africa to a lesser extent. But these are you know uh, attraction powers in their own regions. And, and they have the capacity to literally you know, organize their, uh, their regions around them. And I think it is relevant now more than ever because we are moving to this uh, new globalization phase. Uh, it's not a deglobalization, but it's a globalization that is organized around a few major powers uh, which you know kind of attract all the countries around them. And sometimes you have battles of influence. Uh, but uh, overall, I think we are really moving in that direction now.
0: One one area we haven't talked about, and that's the the Arab economies in, in the MENA region. You know, right. there's been a lot of a lot of talk about that region, particularly around some of the peace deals that have been done over the last few months um, with the Trump administration. Curious to get your thoughts around how the Arab world is changing and its role in the in the broader uh, world.
1: Yes, thank you, Alex. Well, as you know, I, I have written a book on this uh, topic, which was uh, the foreword from uh, former CEO, uh, General Director Pascal Lamy, who is also very interested in this region. And basically, uh, I, I have uh, seen many changes uh, happening in uh, this particular region of the world. And it, uh, it all started uh, basically after the oil price collapse in 2014, 2015, where this, uh, the major powers in this region uh, started to implement reform. We have seen it in Saudi Arabia with the rise of the new generation to power with uh, Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman and uh, technocracy or bureaucracy around him. And he's trying to impulse some new reform and to modernize the economy. And basically, this region, the MENA region, is one of the, the least organized region in the world. There are competing powers and there is no power that actually has this kind of uh, hegemony that you can see in other regions, like in Eurasia with the, with the role of Russia. Russia. Russia, or in Latin America with Brazil. And um, basically, I think that uh, these countries have still to uh, go further in their political integration and to develop their own worldview. I was alluding in my book to the concept of new spice roads. You know, uh, you you have the new Silk Roads, uh, which is a Chinese uh, concept. uh, But um, if you look at history, you have to remember that all these Silk Roads actually were also spice roads and were connecting basically Southeast Asia and East Asia to the Middle East and to Europe. And the Middle East played a a central role in that regard. And I was advocating in my book, in a way, to revive these Silk Roads, uh, uh, which at the time led to tremendous advances in technology, in uh, economic power and, uh, and so on.
0: I'm curious as as you as you talk about these areas and these new Silk Roads or, or Spice Roads as you turn it as you as you term it, how much does geography then play a role in in sort of this relative strength of, of these these countries?
1: Well, geography is a key driver, of both of these countries' strengths and weaknesses. And in terms of connectivity, it's obvious because, for example, the Mina region is at the center of the old world, and therefore it was a central hub. Uh, connecting all these uh, regions, Africa, Europe, and Asia together. It lost a bit of this centrality following the Atlantic Age, but but now it's regaining it with uh, Asia uh, becoming the, the new center of uh, of economic power in the world, really, and uh, and therefore these countries can uh, uh, you know benefit from uh, their proximity to China, India, and Southeast Asia, and also to Africa, which is a rising uh, continent. It's also a weakness in a way, because uh, if you look at the climate in this region. It's a desertic uh, climate, it's very warm, and it's one of the regions that are the most exposed to climate change. And the challenge is very important because you have this rising temperatures overall, and uh, it could lead to this region being inhospitable in about uh, 30 or 40 years from now if the necessary uh, policies to mitigate this evolution are not implemented.
0: It's, it's definitely a huge challenge for them and, and also for them and their way of way of life. You've seen in the Saudi Arabian um, you know, the government, they've put huge pressure on transforming their economy away from oil. You can't just move millions of people, though. So these places are going to need to really come up with some new ideas to totally transform where they live and, and how they live in their current surroundings.
1: Exactly. You can see uh, that in the energy sector, for example, where you have these renewable uh, energy programs uh, with uh, very uh, high ambitions to turn these uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, Egypt into uh, energy hubs. uh, But you also have to take into account the political dynamics on the ground uh, and the economic realities. which uh, really uh, put a brake on these initiatives. So uh, we will see how this will play out, and if the the leadership, uh, the political leadership, and the political will really to advance this agenda is strong enough to overcome uh, these uh, hurdles.
0: That's a great place to transition to to politics and, and political will and, and investments. You know, most of the the listeners to this podcast are from the institutional investment space, and right. and politics is becoming more and more of, a, of an issue, particularly as a organi- uh, number of countries have uh, become more focused on their nationhood and their sovereignty. Yes. How do you think about those sort of power struggles that are, that are playing out um, across many countries around the world today?
1: Well, it's it's interesting to see that you have these political struggles uh, everywhere, both in the advanced uh, countries, so to say, and in the emerging or developing world. From the you know the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement. Uh, in uh, 2008, to the Arab Spring, uh, down to the the instability that we see uh, now in many parts of Africa, for example, uh, Eurasia, we can see that the world is really boiling, so to say. And uh, this instability is also related to the inequality. This uh, you know uh, inequality debate, uh, the, it's uh, it's it's here. And uh, we have seen it uh, grow and grow over the years uh, because uh, the economic model, model, basically, of globalization is based first on large companies and uh, shareholders' interests. And in this uh, approach, you know, the workers, the citizens uh, are not or or were not central in these corporate boardrooms uh, and even in political circles. And now we we see a backlash uh, against that movement that was basically initiated in the 1990s. And now we see this cause for more equality, for more social justice. And in a way, you can see it also in the U.S. election, where you, you, you have this uh, shift back and forth between grassroots and the elites uh, and uh, this polarization between uh, two uh, you know, groups. Uh, it's very difficult to see how this will uh, play out if there are you know, significant policies that would really you know, reverse that uh, in a growing inequality.
0: It's interesting you mentioned inequality as uh, a big problem and that has ru- ru- um, that has also driven a lot of this populism that we've seen around the world. And, and populism is, is not just a, a right-wing thing or a left-wing thing, it's both. People right. can be populist across um, many, many different factors. And you mentioned Occupy Wall Street, which was one of the first. And I would have said that Occupy Wall Street was more of a, a left-leaning group of people that were considered right. to be populist. You know, as we think about these, these rises and falls of, of populism around the world, are we now potentially at more risk for countries to sort of push back as their leaders change and, and we see more expropriation style risks that will come up as, as their leaders try to answer their, um, you know, their population?
1: Definitely, I think you're right because one of the easiest way to answer to this uh, call for equali- equity and equality, uh, actually, for the leaders, it w- is to push the uh, nationalist agenda. And uh, because it, it's easier, you know, that to, to accuse uh, some somebody, a foreign power, from your to be responsible uh, of your problems, of your or social, you know, intricate reality, than really to take the, the steps uh, to redistribute uh, wealth. And, uh, and therefore, I think that this is what, we're, what we are seeing in the United States. The, the, the Trump, uh, you know, uh, mandate was uh, a kind of a wake-up call to this uh, reality, but it, it stays uh, with us even if uh, Trump is gone. And uh, in China as well, you, you you have seen this slowdown in growth. Very significant slowdown in growth over the last 10 years, so to say, or five years. And and now uh, the leadership, you know, uh, tries to move the debate from uh, growth to China's leadership in the world. And this is, in a way, some some kind of trick to calm this social discontent. That has been rising in China as well. Uh, it's uh, uh, China is, will be the the first uh, buyer of uh, luxury goods in 2025. I have read uh, that some, somewhere. But at the same time, you have uh, you have whole provinces and regions uh, which are kind of left behind of the Chinese economic uh, uh, miracle, and um, this will translate sooner or later into politics. There is a, a reawakening of politics, and I think this is. The most critical you know, threat that the, the Chinese leadership now is considering, much more than the threat from uh, foreign powers, actually.
0: It's interesting. If I think about China and, and their threats to, to the leadership and the power of the leadership, one thing that they've done very strongly is crack down on, on free speech. A lot of control over right. their social networks and the ability of people to mobilize and potentially push back against the government. We've now seen that similarly happening in the U.S., how much do you think that social networks and the technology of social networks play a role in sort of the political you know, stage that we're in at the moment?
1: Well, I think uh, it has played a tremendous role, no doubt about that. Uh, and all the, the movements that we have mentioned, uh, you know, the Occupy Wall Street, uh, the Arab Spring, for example, it was called by, by some people a Facebook revolution because this uh, mobilization power that do, these social networks had on the young uh, people and other activists and uh, this is something that is completely new it, it did not uh, exist like uh, 20 years ago At that time you know you you had some uh, political activism and uh, movements but usually it it, uh, it used to to go in waves and then to, to to fade away but now with the with the social networks you have this momentum that is building and you can see that there is an attempt to control these social networks now and maybe even to to censor them in a way, because the, the elites are not pleased with that. It's not populist to say that. It's, it's a reality. And um, I think there will be a, a new generation of actually of social networks and uh, technologies that that will overcome this attempt to, to censor free speech. We have seen it with the, with Parler, for example, which was kind of put down by its uh, internet provider. But now uh, Parler has uh, found alternative ways. To go around these uh, these uh, measures and to revive its you know uh, its space and uh, if you look at uh, for example cryptocurrencies uh, it's also uh, an alternative economic reality that is being developed and that tries to overcome all the restrictions that the states like to put on the movement of capital of people and of uh, ideas.
0: It it's it's going to be a very interesting time it's always interesting but in in this in the space of technology you know when i think about um the the, the restrictions on free speech at the moment and in the case of parlor where they're able to now find another hosting service it reminds right. me of the torrents you know torrenting of movies yes. and, and music and so forth it was almost like whack-a-mole you you hit it one place it pops up another place you know it's constantly evolving and the technology gets stronger all the time. Likewise, we've seen with WhatsApp, they decide that they're going to uh, start to impact on people's privacy. And we've seen a huge swarm of people moving to to signal and to telegram as alternate exactly. services. So the people are, I think, starting to wake up. It's been sp- specifically in the Western world. You know, I speak from Australia. It's been a very good time. We've had right. 30, 40 years of really economic unprecedented growth. Um, and people, I yes. think, have been pretty apathetic But as the pressure comes and the inequality comes, uh, there's more and more challenges for the young people to get ahead. And I think that's the real danger where you're seeing these restrictions on free speech because the young people feel more agitated and they're losing the ability to communicate. Do you feel there's a, a difference between the types of young people that are growing up in the Western world versus maybe some of the... developing countries, the emerging market areas where people are much more willing to change and much more driven to change their their economies?
1: I think, Alex, as you have just said, uh, even in the Western world, you have this awakening among the young uh, people and this desire to go against this uh, trend of rising inequality and fading uh, opportunities that, that has been building and the young people now see it more than ever. The internet and the social media, the world is much more connected uh, than before. And I think that uh, there there will be this uh, return to more polarization, but in a a way it's a good thing, I think. Polarization, it means that uh, you you have competing political proposals, uh, and uh, this is uh, what democracy is all about, is to choose the proposals that fit the majority, and uh, and accommodate the the needs of the different groups. And uh, for some time, this was uh, completely sedated, in a way. Uh, The roaring 1990s, uh, and then then the 2Ks, up till the the great financial crisis. And there, I think, the people uh, started to wake up. And now, with the pandemic... I think it's even more the case because the people see the power of the, 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 of big tech. They see the, the, the power of the governments that uh, put all these restrictions in place, which are, for most of them, for good reasons. But they see the, the, the people see how this impacts their freedom, how this impacts uh, their opportunities as well. And they want to have uh, their say in that. They, they don't want some bureaucrat to decide uh, in a corner on their future. And I think it's a positive thing overall.
0: How much do you feel that, that the indebtedness, particularly of, of the Western world in terms of the people more, more predominantly, are restricted from speaking out because they are so paranoid about their job and the, the debt load that they have versus, again, some of the developing countries where they don't have uh, such, such these heavy debt loads where they're restricted almost to, to speak out?
1: Well, I think it's, it's, it's right to say that in these developing countries, uh, um, most of the people, especially the young people, have nothing to lose. So uh, actually, they will, they will uh, uh, go for the revolution rather than for some kind of slow moving uh, reform process. But you, you also have the reality that in these countries, you have mostly authoritarian powers. Uh, and actually, uh, we have seen it in the Arab Spring, for example. You, you had a strong backlash and boomerang effect, so to say, from the political elites, against uh, these rising uh, demands uh, for uh, equality, for, for justice, for uh, for freedom. So the, I think the situation is uh, also complicated in the developing world because, uh, you know, if you, you go in the street and you protest, you can uh, go to jail and stay there for, for years, which is not the case, actually, in the Western world uh, where you have this uh, right to, to protest and uh, uh, even with, with these uh, limits that we have been talking, uh, to express your uh, opinions
0: as as we talk to institutional investors you know as the broad audience here many of them are starting to look towards china as an investment opportunity other emerging markets right. i know many have been looking even at india and brazil what are some of the blind spots that you mentioned at the start in terms of as you invest in these particular regions what should they really be looking out for
1: well, I think the first thing to look at is the, the political dynamics and, uh, and the social realities on the grounds in this country, uh, which eventually will translate into some kind of disruptions. And this is what we call, you know, there is a, a, a French school of, uh, of foresight. This is what you call the weak signals. And you have to pay attention to these weak signals. In China, you have this rising inequality, you have also the fact that people, the young generation is much more educated, it's much more urbanized, and they have their demands for political participation, which is much stronger than the previous generations. So I think we are heading for some problems in that regard. And I think the the Communist Party of China has some, some headaches to manage, because if they don't accept to evolve their, their uh, ways of uh, thinking uh, their, and, and to share power, eventually they will have to share uh, their, their political power. I think this uh, could really lead some to some kind of uh, implosion and this is a risk for investors who are putting money in these countries, which are not completely transparent and where you cannot really predict what the leadership will, will do in the next 10 to 20 years. I think this is the time horizon you have to consider, especially if you are an institutional investor putting your money over the long term in some company or in some country.
0: It's interesting because you don't even need a war to create a stranded asset or a depreciated asset. There could be a situation where there's pressure from the government that almost restricts access to your your asset or it gets expropriated, for example, and these things happen overnight.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, it happens in all governments, but the, the difference in in those authoritarian countries and, and political system is that uh, it, it is very brutal. and uh, from from one day to the other, you have uh, the CEO of that company that uh, you know disappears from a public sight and uh, the, 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 the states can do and undo fortunes literally from one day to the other which is uh, less the case in the you know the established uh, democracies. But even in, in these established democracies, uh, you have this regulatory risk that is uh, important when you have the shifts in technology and shifts uh, in the global risk outlook. For example, climate change is really a key driver of uh, regulatory change now. And uh, you were mentioning stranded assets. Uh, it's clear that uh, all the oil and gas, uh, the, the fossil fuel assets at some time will become stranded assets. Nobody really knows when it will happen, but we are sure that it will happen. And uh, all the developments in EV and so on are leading uh, us in that direction. So you have to really consider if you are uh, looking uh, to make an opportunistic bet on the short term for example on the rebound of oil prices in the short term which i think will be the case or if you are looking at the longer term where you have this transition to other realities and you have this regulatory risk which can from one day to the other say okay now all the electric all the vehicles that are sold in the country must be electric vehicles in in one year or two years from now and this creates uh, huge uh, shocks. And this is only one of the most obvious uh, examples, but you you have that in, in other uh, areas uh, as well.
0: Three probably key areas of geopolitical tension of late has been gold, oil, and, and now becoming Bitcoin because of its power to ultimately create money as well. You talked on right. a little bit about Bitcoin to start with. What, what do you see as the role of oil? I know you mentioned that it's going to face challenges because of the EV revolution and, and more and more alternate ways of, of generating power. What do you see as the role of oil going forward and, and also with, with the importance of gold in terms of the geopolitical system and the backing of, of gold as, as money?
1: right well i think oil uh, will be mostly used as a feedstock for the petrochemical uh, industries in in 20 years uh, from now beyond um, oil uh, you know uh, you have to look at natural gas for example which is which I, I think actually has a much more important role to play in that transition for realistic reasons because we cannot uh, jump from day one from a system that is based on fossil fuels predominantly, still today, to a world economy that is based on some kind of uh, miracle renewable energies that are yet to be invented, even on today's renewable energies. If you take hydrogen, it's a, a good example, because you have this so-called green hydrogen, which is made from sol- uh, from re- renewable uh, energies through a process of electrolysis, you, you put electricity into water and then you have hydrogen and oxygen. But uh, uh, most of the hydrogen that is produced now, it's not done that way. It's uh, extracted from natural gas. And when, when you, you, you process natural gas and when you process oil, then as a, a product, uh, as a byproduct, you have uh, this uh, hydrogen. And I think uh, this is where actually most of the debates should center how to make this hydrogen greener and cleaner and to use it in a more significant way. Um, And this is the the, the concept of blue hydrogen. So you have to compensate your carbon emissions. But I think these these are really the key points that should be considered in a realistic uh, way. For example, as uh, regarding Bitcoin, I think uh, it's a still a very novel uh, technology. I'm quite a bit uh, puzzled by the speculative uh, rally that we are seeing uh, right now because let's face it uh, when bitcoin is at 40,000 uh, dollar what what can you do with that? You know, it's not a currency obviously. It's it's not uh, fungible. It's not something that that can be divided in small amounts to make transactions with them. So it's a kind of you know supercharged version of a wealth store device, but it's very volatile, and and therefore I think that we have to look beyond Bitcoin to all the technologies and all the the crypto assets that are being developed. Personally, I like more something like Ether, which has really very practical you know use cases, as it is the it could completely rewrite the global economy through these smart contracts. You know, physical contracts require a a lot of paperwork and so on. With uh, ether and other related technologies, you have these smart contracts which can entirely reconstruct uh, whole supply chains and uh, contractual relations between uh, sellers and buyers. And I think this is a, a very promising technology to look at.
0: And gold? Well,
1: gold, there are always gold bucks, and I think there will be because it's, uh, it's something that is really fascinating mankind uh, from the beginning. Uh, it has this capacity today, uh, as it is uh, for you know, thousands of years, and uh, this puts it apart from, from other metals uh, and other uh, kind of commodities. Uh, also, it's, it's, not, it's not manipulated by political attempts to tweak the value of money, as we see with the fiat uh, currencies so actually i think it's a reasonable asset especially when you have this rising risks of political polarization and the fact that money is being debased by the central banks and and therefore when you eventually will will start to see this inflation rising perhaps in a way that we have not seen for decades then I think gold will really, you know, recover some of of its uh, shine, uh, so to say, and therefore it's uh, I think it's an interesting asset to consider, even uh, in small uh, proportions in your portfolio.
0: That's a perfect setup for my final question, which is the power of the U.S. dollar. We've always talked about sort of the the hegemony that comes with various currencies and the different uh, stages through history where there's been the pound um, that was along along uh, has a long history of being one of the most dominant currencies we've moved to the us dollar of late what's your thoughts on on the us dollar um for the next 10 20 years and and what would be the likely challenger
1: Sure. Well, I think, you know, there have been this uh, talk about the decline of the dollar, uh, the replacement of the dollar by uh, alternative currencies. But so far, we see that US uh, capital markets are the deepest uh, in the world, Uh, and the dollar is the currency of choice uh, for uh, trade transactions and financial transactions. For example, in the the Forex market, 80% of the transactions involve the dollar as one leg of the pair. And uh, most of the other uh, FX transactions that you have between different currencies have to go through a dollar as an intermediary vehicle. And therefore, I think the the dollar will stay as long as we will need this means of uh, transaction uh, at the global uh, level, whatever the political whims uh, in in the United States. In the longer term, uh, there will be alternatives. That's for sure and this will depend on the in the in the case of the euro for example this will depend on the political process because uh, so far you have european countries but you have nothing uh, like the united states of europe if at some point we will move in that direction and if euro will be considered as a very uh, stable and uh, store of, uh, of value and the means of transactions, then the euro will gain much uh, more weight, uh, actually, than it has uh, today. Then you have the Chinese uh, yuan, the, the renminbi, which has its own challenges, as China is still uh, quite a closed uh, economy when we, we talk of uh, finance and financial flows. And um, the, the leadership will have at some point to accept to lose control over the money flowing back and forth in the country. And I think this will be the tipping point. But we are not quite there yet, and it could take some time. And it's also dependent on the evolution of the political system, because you have to accept, in a way, to share power domestically but also internationally. What the US did, and really, uh, they, you know, uh, grasped the benefit of this uh, uh, policy, this forward looking policy, which was implemented after World War Two, by the likes of uh, Eisenhower, Truman, and so on. And now we, 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 I I don't see some kind of, uh, you know, revolution in that regard, but a slow evolution, actually.
0: All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Alex.
1: Thank you very much, Alex. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.